0: Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Abraham Brixen, the co-founder and artistic director of Odyssey Works, and Aiden LaRue, the assistant director of Odyssey Works and the author of several books related to their work. Odyssey Works makes amazing performances for an audience of one, and they're truly cutting edge leaders in the field of experience design. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Aiden, Abe, I'm so excited to be sitting here with you today. We've seen each other a fair amount over the last couple of months, but really excited today to be able to turn the tables a little bit and just interview you guys about your work and your influences and, and all of that maybe just to start, I'm sure you guys get this all the time, but for folks who like aren't as familiar with Odyssey Works, how would you describe it and the kind of the uh, origin of your work and what it is now?
1: You want me to say the origin of the work, and you can talk about where it's gone? All right, Odyssey Works is an experiment that was supposed to end that never ended, (laughs) (laughs) essentially. It was a kind of a thought, it was a thought experiment. I was hiking Molaire State Park and. Big Sur with my friend Matthew, and we were having this long conversation about this this problem of the relationship between the artist and the audience. And we thought it was just so weird that you create something and you send it out as, as a product in the world and, and hope that it finds the right person. And, and if it gets misread, oh well. And if you happen to one day run into that person, that's nice. But it lacked a certain kind of relationality, and it also had this sort of broadcast quality to it. So way of thinking and we got to the end of our couple miles hike down the Molera State Park down to the beach and we sat down and we started talking about well what would it be if you were to create work just for one person I mean it seems the obvious counterbalance right like oh why are we doing it this way why not do it a different way why not create for one person couldn't you make it more impactful if I can use that as a word couldn't we make it customized couldn't we make it something that had the possibility of being transformative in what ways are we handicapped by this broadcast kind of commercial you know put something out in the market approach and those questions led to a thousand doors opening we started experimenting with making experiences for just one person Matthew was a was a painter and a playwright a, a director rather and i was a writer and an architect and you know we're, we're not used to working this way but we we started with each other i i studied matthew and he studied me and we had a group of artists we worked with and so we started making it for different people inside the group just to experiment what would it be what would it be to understand a person's subjectivity and design for that instead of how is it that artist design kind of towards a sort of an objective space that is imagined, or or maybe it's towards uh, putting your subjective view out into the world and hoping somebody can kind of plug in because they have the right kind of subjectivity that meshes with yours. And there's this kind of hope, this chance thing that happens there. What happens when we actually meet the person, understand their subjectivity, have our work engage with that subjectivity specifically, and it become a conversation not with oneself and the world the culture but the way my subjectivity my way of seeing the world interfaces with yours and so we created you know the first one was maybe 8 hours and then 12 hours and then they became 24 hour long experiences 3 months <laughs> 3 months oh, right. Wow. right they just kept growing because hey you know when you have a captive audience <laughs> why limit yourself and this is one of the things <laughs> and that now, up. yeah now
2: 20 years later <laughs> Years I mean, yeah, we are approaching the 20th anniversary. I mean, for a long time, Odyssey Works were these one-person performances of, you know, a team of artists. Out of those experiments evolved this group of people who were really spending six months studying one individual, designing and crafting a transformative experience. And I think always, there have been like so many different formal categories that the work has fallen under. You know, it could be performance art, it could be experience design, it could be theater. A lot of people have felt like it's immersive theater, but really it doesn't really matter what category you put us in. It's more about that aim of transformation, just what I think we can bring to this conversation. And And now also further out of those states of deep attention to another person, And to the one-person audience has come a collaborative practice between the two of us. We were talking about this earlier today. That almost now we've shifted away from making those performances. I mean, now we're in an era of isolation. So that's making that performance doesn't feel possible this year because it is a very in-person lived experiential thing that we don't want to be mediated by a Zoom screen. But now what we're designing, the people that we're designing for are students and and pedagogically both abraham and i have a lot of experience as educators and so some of it is how do we bring the approach of empathy the approach of experimentation the approach of breaking down borders between genre or discipline to anyone's sort of creative work and facilitate transformation in each person's private realm of creative work
1: uh, and experience design like at its height you know the we were creating pieces that would occupy most of the year for us. And we'd have a team of maybe four or five at the core and then another dozen artists working closely with us and then another 20 people who are working with those artists and then you know up to 50 or 60 people from the public who would come in and help us create scenes. And then the experiences we design would span media from live you know, experiences to reading a book, to watching a film, to having a talk with your mother, to going for a walk, pretty much anything we could think of that we could sort of consider inside a composition of states of experience, which is what we really make, is compositions of states of experiences that we're, we're aspiring to offer our audience, our participant, anything that we can think of we would were anything and we had the sort of skill set to make amongst our people we would become what odysseys were. you know we've had novels written we have had long pieces of music composed and recorded and performed sculptures it, i mean it's just so broad um, right. hacking the new york times like all kinds of things
0: yeah and so i mean um first of all it's so cool what you guys have, have all done One of the things that comes to mind, uh, I was talking to someone earlier today about your process and and about this idea of designing for an audience of one is that it feels like it can kind of like short circuit one of the pitfalls that I know uh, I can sometimes get into and many people get into around design, which is designing for just, you know, a too vague of an audience, like not being specific enough with the work. And it feels like, you know, there's no real hiding, right? Where it's like, I have this great idea for a thing, but like, does it work for Rick? Not like, okay, maybe there's like some general, you know, audience might be interested in this, but really makes you really focus on empathy and really diving into another person's life. Like, Do you think this is almost like, could be almost one of the most useful ways for folks who are interested in getting into experience design and like improving that skill set that just focusing on designing for one person would be one of the the fastest ways to like level up and, and gain experience?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I was at a talk with a write, two writers earlier this week. And one of the things they were talking, it was a craft book, a writing craft book. And these two writers were tra- Brandon Taylor and uh, Matthew Salas. I, I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, we're talking about how the like fiction workshop, which I don't know if you're familiar with that format, is like both of them are people of color. And they were like, this experience fundamentally sucked for me, right? And some of the things that they were proposing was that the way that we talk about creative work just doesn't have enough concentration on audience. And people get really annoyed being asked, well, who's your audience? Because it feels like, how can I know? But what they were arguing for felt so aligned with what we think about all the time, which was like, well, some of the people in that workshop giving you feedback are not your audience, right? And that's okay. It's okay to know that that person isn't your audience. And, and the more that we can understand who we're empathetically trying to connect with and create for is really important. It's important in the spirit of generosity to understand who you're giving a gift to. And you know this, but like we think a lot about Lewis Hyde and, and his ideas about the gift.
0: For me... I think often in, in my work, there can be this conversation between what is self-expression and what is really designing for others. And I'm curious, you know, do you, is there a degree of real self-expression in the work as well? And how does that kind of engage in conversation with being so focused on really like a specific person that you're designing for? It's
1: so interesting, that idea self-expression i'm I'm just like i'm fascinated with it because what is coming out and what is the need and what is there's an idea of art as communication and the communication especially when it involves humans is a dynamic thing right like when i express myself to my wife or you know my one-year-old there's this kind of dynamism to it. It affects them. They respond in their different ways and I respond in a different way. And who I am is, it's being expressed to them for a reason. And that reason is because I exist somehow in relationship to them. My subjectivity is in relationship with them. And so when we do this, it's so fascinating because when we do this work, we're creating something that is a self-expression but it's a self-expression that comes from a place of looking at another person and being challenged by them like when we did the piece for rick that i think you mentioned he challenged us to think about ourselves relative to the way he thought about himself he's very different he's wildly successful or he's very successful author and also a religious Christian. And we had to take him in with deep respect and understand how to look at ourselves, how to look at those things in his life relative to ourselves. And this is, I think, this was the big shock of this way of working, Casey, because I think in the design world and our capitalist society, and I'm not going to go into some critique of capitalism, but in this (laughs) world of like putting things into... To market there's a notion that you're unaffected by the person you're affecting right like there's the person who affects and the person who is affected and it isn't a two-way thing you're putting your widgets out into the world and people love them it doesn't matter like in a dynamic way for you but but when we started
2: well also i think like it's less of a stretch for people to recognize the ways in which you can be giving care and attention to people at the same time as expressing yourself when you think about the love letter. And when you think about a love poem, like those are two forms historically that I have no trouble thinking about how a love poem is both an act of devotion and seeing someone really purely. And it is a self-expression, right? And that those can merge into the same thing. And of course, there are different forms that feel like it's easier or more legible to see that meeting of that relationship that Abe's talking about. Like maybe I sit here and I write a personal essay and I have an idea of people who are interested in genetics and prophecy about the body or the fragility of the body. And that's going to be my audience, right? And I am the best part of writing is to receive that feedback and enter into conversation it feels like that's more of a stretch, right? And I think our work really allows for one of the things that we always say to the people that we work with is like, don't get lost in the empathy, right? Like you're still an artist and you are bringing discipline and craft and experience as a maker to the table as you make this thing. And we're spending six months studying this person and that's part of the discipline and craft as much as, you know, learning how to paint in such a way and capture light in such a way, or Learning how to right. compose music with a certain style. I, I'm not a musician, so I don't know the lingo. But
1: yeah, I mean, this. I'm so glad you bring up the love letter. Like we, that's like, of course, that's going to affect you to write the love letter to your beloved. But you know, also that essay could work that way. Like, why isn't that the rule? Why isn't the bicycle I designed for you, Casey, or the IKEA couch I put together for you? something that affects me as much as you, that is a dynamic thing in our relationship. Look, we made an odyssey for Aiden once. And one of the things we made in it that was, I think, really affecting was a workshop because Aiden leads workshops, right? And we invited her in to lead this workshop together. And that was that was profound for me to think about what it would be for, for Aiden and then to witness her coming into this Situation that we'd created for her. I mean, it was a workshop, like a love letter. How's that? You know, it's a different way of thinking about the things we put into the world and how they're, and considering that the relational is default in that.
2: I think structurally, we're not trained also to recognize the relationality or we don't get to center it enough. I just think that formally, in terms of the way that often work is presented, the places that you present your creative self and your creative work don't allow for that relationality in the most profound ways. Like something we talk about in our book is like our measures of success aren't about selling tickets to a theater and then hearing enough applause or not. Right. And I think those, those measures, if you can return them to the relational and the dynamic thing, that's like, we're having a conversation, right? If you remind yourself of how, what you're making is a conversation, how the space you're making with Open Divs, the community, the conversations you're having, that is a crafted relationship. If we were to like retrain all creative people to to center that or understand that better in their own practice, then that would radically shift away from this idea, I think there's a lot of judgment of artists being like egomaniacs, right? And that's because they've been trained to not think of their work as relational.
0: Right. Well, and I think it's so interesting because I feel like there's this like romantic image of the artist who just like sits in a hermit in a forest or on a, an island and just paints for for their own sake and, you know, does this amazing work and is not even concerned about, you know, how it's received and is just doing the work for the work's sake. Yeah, Work with integrity, right? It's like idea of like, I once heard a comedian, you know, talk about like doing comedic work with integrity is like, you know, the kernels at the end of the popcorn bag that haven't popped, those are the ones with integrity, right? And yes, yeah, but but like, I think what's interesting about your, the way you guys approach work is it's, it's not about, I have this kind of artist, artistic craft that I'm, you know, is I'm serving as like, I'm worshiping beyond all else. And there is still this seeking craft, but it's really about that experience, that emotion that I'm creating in another person, Right. And that, I think, is also a view that's led you to go beyond just a single form, right? It's not about a painting, a novel, a defacing of the times, or, a, or improvement of the times, if you will. But it's it's a, um, you know, it's okay. we want to help kind of create an emotion. Um, what are the symbols and structures that will allow us to do that? And I, I mean, you talk about your work is trying to create transformative experiences. I'm curious, you know, can you talk more about that? Like, what is it, how do you think about taking the symbols of a person's life, like, a workshop with, with Aiden and then utilizing that towards something. And does that, does, does not like trying to engender transformation almost dip into kind of spiritual territory, personal growth, I kind of, yeah.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think often we're very easily confused as like therapy, but I feel like it's more about, we all go through many transformations in our lives and I think that's the thing about it that's interesting is that we can access someone's life at any point in time. There's not just like one point in time where it matters to have a transformative experience. Sorry for the noise if you hear that. But to me, I think that's also a way for us as artists to acknowledge the well of like where we work from, right? It's also transformative for us to be given such a gift to be trusted Entrusted to be led in in that way with a stranger is profound. To be trusted to to guide and facilitate students is also a big, very serious and transformative process. And I think for me, it certainly fills up some part of me. And if it wasn't that deeply profound and meaningful, then like, what am I doing? at that work, you know, like, why bother? How okay. do you feel about it, Abe?
1: Yeah. You know, I come from an architecture background and I got my start in architecture walking around Istanbul, wandering into mosques and the, Hag- the Hagia Sophia and Hamams. And all of these are not just incredible buildings, but they're buildings that come with attendant experience design. On the way in, on the way out, on the inside, it's, it's something that architects like to disaggregate from the buildings, but it's impossible, right? A, a mosque is a mosque and you have to wash your hands before you go in, uh, which is part of the experience design. Once you're in, you're oriented, you're oriented to the earth and to the spiritual axes on the earth and you enter into a narrative, you enter in, into a pla- you have a place in that narrative. You're not just in hearing a narrative, you have a place in it and you're participating. And all architecture does this, but of course the, the religious architecture does this so well and in a way that's been more considered and more analyzed. But you know when you go there, my experience was, in those mosques in Istanbul, that I was somebody else. I was a different person. I was a person with different possibilities in that space. The space had affordances and it made it possible for me to be somebody in relationship to the spiritual orientation of the earth and relationship to a set of ideas, the shape of the dome, all of it allowed me to consider myself in a totally new way. And that's experience design. That's transformative. And we, I think, we sort of think of transformation as a, you're sort of hit on the head, and then you realize you were a jerk, and now you're going to be a nice person. And thanks, ghosts, for taking me around, and showing me how bad my my attitude was, and I'll be better next Christmas. But actually, the context in which we're placed make possible for us different things, and they both structure our psychology and They structure our our attention, which is no small matter. They make it possible for us to see and receive and be open in totally different ways. And I think it's easy to undervalue that. But the work we do has accidentally shown us the incredible value of that. Even little things like taking away your cell phone is transformative. Just... Hugely so. Spending more time than you would expect doing anything changes your attentiveness. Boredom. Even is the act,
2: i think—even the act of knowing that something has been designed for you, just like the way that people come, the state of attention that they are in amidst the odyssey, simply because they've been told that it's happening, not because of anything that is happening is so different because they feel like they're in this moment of there's just such deep receptivity in the way that they move through the world, the way they see things, any the way they see potential meaning everywhere, which I think is the sort of like spiritual side that often meaning has been sort of alchemized in some way by a religious or spiritual practice. And I mean, that level of attention isn't sustainable, right? I don't think... We can move through the world in that heightened pose um, or stance. But yeah, that is a profoundly transformative thing to see meaning and potential everywhere.
0: And I'm, I'm curious, one of the, there's this, this framework that a religious studies scholar has put out around kind of a way to look at various religions and I think is interesting to look at non religions as well and other ideologies, which is this idea of religions. Have been created to solve a problem with their thesis on what a solution would be. Um, They provide a path and they give you kind of exemplars of the people who've walked the path and like taken this route, right? So, um, you know, uh, an example would be like in Buddhism, the problem is attachment or, or, um, you know, aversion. The solution is non attachment and and presence. The the path is like, you know, meditation, mindfulness, the Eightfold Path is laid out. I mean, the exemplars, there's people throughout history or teachers, all these people who've walked it, right? And I'm curious, I bring it up because with with your work, when you're thinking about designing an experience for someone, are there any kind of like frameworks of understanding, like, you know, I know like, you know, even some therapies will have some idea of like what, you know, progress looks like. Like, do you guys bring any of that to your work? Or is it more trying to see kind of people's lives through their own eyes and then, you know, understanding what, just give them a little nudge through the experience to either new perspective or, or towards uh Towards action that may be
1: kind of uh, latent? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a very clear answer for it, but I think one thing I do want to say is that on the other hand, <laughs> from everything we've been saying, we're just a bunch of artists. And we have the same, we have the same aims and goals that artists have long had, which is to create something powerful and moving. And there's a certain trust in the, in the efficacy of that. Transformation is not really, in a way, it's not the goal. It's sort of the media for those experiences to happen. We want to offer you the possibility to be somebody different so that we can create something that you can experience as that new person. We've been talking about pilgrimage a lot. And you know pilgrimage involves a long walk. We were thinking about Aiden's and Odyssey.
2: Odysseys. Yeah. Odysseys are journeys, right? Like there is a structure of a journey.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but you you are changed by the fact of the long walk. You end up at the holy site. You have to be transformed to be able to arrive at the church at the site, and otherwise it it wouldn't have the same effect. And in a way that maybe how we think about transformation as well maybe nobody can ever see anything, <laughs> maybe it's impossible. I you
2: know. would also say that even if there isn't like a set system or structure or methodology that you're sort of trying to tap in, there are some things that happen very often in odysseys that we find are like the, almost like the tempo of certain certain notes have to be hit, I think. And one of the things, um, and this isn't to say that it's like mechanized in any way or that there's a formula, but We often do start, I would say, Abe, like any odyssey starts with meeting someone in something that they really love to do. Oftentimes at the beginning, there's a, let's embrace who you are so fully or like go deep into something that really matters to you. Because part of that is about building energy, building a certain, like when we diagram, when Abe diagrams, because I'm terrible at making them, there's... Often this sort of like go deep into whatever most embodies that person's selfhood. And then that's once you feel safe and secure in that, that's when you're more open to be challenged, right? Like it comes from this understanding that to have a breakthrough or experience transformation, you have to be pushed in some way and tested in some way. And it's much easier to go into a test if you feel safe and secure on the start. So there is some like, and that takes shape and looks differently for each person, right? But, and being stripped down or removing some things that are comfortable, like removing phone, changing clothes, taking away money and wallet and phone also now, I think it removes the ability to document and it creates a state of presence. There are some maneuvers like that, that are techniques that can be used, right? And we have a lot of techniques in our toolkit, but- they don't happen in a sort of like rote formula. It's more like we've seen these things that work and can facilitate that.
0: Yeah, so interesting. And I think the phone in this day is such a powerful blocker of experience when it's present, such a, a shift in what is normal um, or shift mm-hmm. from what is normal to, to take it away. And maybe this is an interesting time to talk about the god iPhone access. Yeah. <laughs> and you're working in some of the, the, the course yeah would you, would you talk a little bit about that what is that and why how does it play out and I think about some of the work
2: you know this is actually the name of abraham's phone network right? yeah. that's how it started
0: <laughs> that's hilarious
1: oh my god yeah well it was before I had an iPhone, actually, that I thought about I, I couldn't stop thinking about the God iPhone access. It's the iPhone is the most manifest thing I could imagine at the time. I don't know, maybe the iWatch is now. I'm not really sure. But there's it's just this is manifestation. Like it, this is worldly. This is as worldly as you can get. And God is at the other end of that axis, which is the most sort of otherworldly. And considering them on an axis is has been fun uh, and really interesting because there's on an axis you move and there's a relationship um, and this really came, I think this really came into most application for Odyssey Works when we were doing our 2013 piece, which was largely about imminence, which an imminence is kind of got iPhone access. Like the more you go into the profane, the more you can enter into the divine, right? That's the God iPhone axis. Like you can, it's it's an idea of non-monastic spirituality you might say, that is to say your your religious practice is here uh, wherever you are and you enter into the axis wherever you are. And um, in and
2: we our- We talked about it a lot in terms of the subway as the yeah. sublime in terms in that piece of like the the transcendence of the grime and, and being also witness to so many people and moving through spaces and seeing horrors at the same time as being privy to such intimacies like watching someone respond to the call to prayer on a moving train you know like yeah, it's
1: all intermingled, and that's the god iPhone axis, and and it's and I think that's where we work in in Odyssey works right because the person's life is our material, and it's it goes from the profane to the to the divine to the sublime, and everything is an entry point, which is really interesting. Everything is a, is an opportunity to have a different way of seeing, and when we use some of these techniques that Aidan mentioned, which are really easy, actually, I mean, that's I think our biggest secret is like our our main techniques are pretty straightforward. Like if you just- Use a
2: blindfold.
1: (laughs) A blindfold really does a lot.
2: Removing any sense, one of your sensory experiences will change how you understand the world. Yeah.
1: Having somebody not feel judged for just a minute, you know, is just so powerful that your consciousness opens. And then from any point of experience in your life, you can have a really transcendent experience. It's transformative there.
2: And I think that ability, I'll just add on one little thing, which is that so central to our work is that thing that Ava is saying, where like your life is the material, there's no boundary, there's no barrier, there's no crossing the threshold of into art and out of art in the way that we work. And the permeability of feeling like the art that's being made for you actually affects your life and bleeds into it. And that there's some frame, but that the frame is kind of false, actually, really matters. And I think that that connects to spirituality or whatever sort of connection to anything divine is for for people, right, is that it can't be partitioned off, right? You can go to a separate space, maybe. You can go into a church or a monastery or um, a temple, but...
1: There's an order of dervishes, I can't remember the name anymore, but they're sort of, they're both famous and and a little bit of, I don't know, maybe a joke, not because they're, they're not serious, but because they're something you always refer to, this order of dervishes whose path is through sit, through doing all the wrong things. I wish I could remember their name. And, you know, they smoke and drink and do whatever else, but the practice is to be unattached internally to live through that without the negative effects it's supposed to be you have know, the hardest way to be a dervish um, because you're uh you're you're doing all the things that are going to drag you in the wrong direction and yet inside you're staying free amongst the dervishes i knew that was uh that was always like well no no, no i'm being i can't remember their name i wish i could but i'm being that kind of dervish i'm not actually breaking the rules you know but I think that's that's some of it, right? Like there's the divine every experience is kind of the idea.
0: Right, right. Well, and, and Abram, you've talked a little bit, I think, about I know you've spent some time in Sufism. Aidan, I know less about your your kind of spiritual background, but I'm I'm curious, how do those experiences shape how you think about experience design beyond, you know, visiting mosques and all that? Is is there is there some kind of influence? Or yeah. For sure.
1: You know. You have, I think, in some spiritual practices, especially mystical and meditative practices, this kind of, these two steps in an experience design. One is preparing the state, right? In a way, that's kind of what meditation is. You're changing, you're working towards a different inner state. And then the second one is whatever comes next, whatever you do in that in that state. That's why I was talking about pilgrimage, which is a kind of long preparation of the state and then the arrival at the end goal. Of course, maybe the preparation of the state was the point, but there's this sort of constant dialogue and contexts, communities, prayer practices, the Sufis zikr or dhikr, they prepare a state. And then when you can then move into a prayer or something more, more specific, there's a different kind of openness. There's a different sort of spiritual relationship to that. I think about, you know, you go to the dervishes I was spending time with and the practices I was learning, whirling dervishes, the, they weren't the Meblevies, they were the other whirling dervishes, the jarahis. And, you know, this, this is a practice called the sama, which is, means audition, means like, sort of like, you know, we're doing art basically. And it's often through the centuries, it's been various different kinds of art practices, dance, music primarily, but also poetry. And the only ones I know of now are the whirling. But there's this whole experience designed to get to the place. There's a zikr beforehand, there's hours of prayer, and um, the preparation that the dervish does before he and its you know, traditionally only he, but in contemporary practice, especially for the Medlevis, who are now in the United States, there are women as well. The practice of dance is this kind of very worldly thing that then becomes transcendent. And, and there's, to be more specific about that, there's craft, right? There's this idea that the craft has to be perfect. And when you get deep into the craft of the dance, and the music, which is a central part of it. It has an actual effect. It has a transformative effect and you are changed. And so this is, of course, there's experience design throughout religious practice, especially Orthodox and traditional and more other traditional practices. But this one has had a huge effect on me because you, you could see how the specificity of this mundane thing, aesthetics, music, the room, the conversations, the meal you had, all contributed to this transcendent experience, which is so on the other end of the god iPhone axis. You know, um, Dinner is not that far from iPhone, but dinner is a really important part of how the whirling happens, or the witnessing of the whirling happens. If that makes sense, yeah. the clothes matter.
2: And I think, I mean, I have not worlded with the dervishes, but I think there's something really kindred. And I think this is why we've collaborated for so long, which is that I've always felt like art has been the sort of like spiritual core of, of inquiry for me. And, and for me personally, there's something with, um, with land art and earthworks specifically, which if you don't know, or like big monumental works that exist outside of galleries, most often in the desert in the Southwest. And they engage with earth as material. And I think there is some component for me, the most transcendent experiences of my life have been going out to these incredibly isolated. Also speak of leaving behind your phone, like going to the most isolated place so far away from, more distanced from other humans than I have ever been in my life in order to just be with this work that is going to connect me with some component of nature, whether it's the lightning field and Walter maria has got these rods going into the sky to attract lightning. And you spend 24 hours just waiting to see if lightning will come because it's a place in, on earth that has a very high instance of it, or whether it's going to Nancy Holt's sun tunnels and being in the middle of the desert in Utah, so far away, you can't see any lights in the distance in order to watch the light change through these concrete tunnels that align with certain constellations and stars and see the way, and then also the sun and moon align in certain ways on the solstices. And to me, those are are like physical constructions that invite a kind of presence and attention that is spiritual with the world, with other people.
0: Very, very cool. Both, both those examples, I think, maybe uh, expand what things people would traditionally think of as, as experience design. And um, yeah, it seems like both in some ways are, are kind of, and maybe all, all experience design is about creating some kind of like emotional response, maybe like a peak emotion. And in some cases, like the dervishes, there's a you know, clear narrative around it, right? Maybe in, in the Odyssey, Folks are left up to kind of create their own narrative out of the experience that comes out of the Odyssey, and then in the case of these large land structures, it also feels again like a moment of awe um, connection that is again up to interpretation. Or maybe this just left this kind of like an experience to be, to be remembered.
1: Can you I, I say something about the narrative that yeah. you're just talking about? Because it's um, this is one of the things that struck me after I, was, I spent about two years learning the whirling. And afterwards, I did a lot of study or during, and afterwards, I read a lot of the, those clear narratives that you're talking about. And I'd heard some while I was there, while I was in Turkey, and Turkish is not that good, so it was not that good. Now it's non existent. And so I, I, I took in a lot more later, but the narrative is really interesting, it's a part of experience design. And there's, there's a kind of interface between experience and narrative, which is fascinating and fluid and part of an experience design. So we were told things, I mean, you read these stories about what the whirling is, but the fact is that the experience of the whirling is not explainable in that story. So what was the function of the story? It was like a kind of preparation There's a preparation for a way of being around this activity, not as much uh, a a sort of direct description, even though it looks like that at at first, it puts you in a a mindset that prepares you for a type of experience. And this is writing a narrative as a type of experience design. Likewise, with Odyssey Works, we do have narratives. We have stories. Sometimes there are books. Sometimes there are things we tell people. But... Those stories, when we're at our best, are there as a piece of the experience design, not necessarily as the takeaway. And in as much they they kind of a story changes, it prepares you for experience. Like even if we think of stories as broadly understood, narratives as broadly understood as, you know, it could be the name of a bird, and it could be, you know, the story of the universe, right? And if you know the name of a bird you see it differently. Oh, that's a blue-necked (laughs) warbler, whatever, right? But suddenly it's there and you can identify You have a different relationship with it. your, Your attention is prepared. And so I think, you know, we can, I think sometimes we think of narratives as like, that's the whole thing. You walk away, that's what it was. But actually it's a part of the experience design. And, you know, there are narratives in religion that are Ridiculous, right? Like you, they don't make any sense. You know, pretty much all of them make no sense if you sort of look at them literally. But if you understand them as a kind of preparation for a way of relating, if you understand, you know, the idea that you're eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood, like it's hard for that to work out with in the mind of somebody, you know, a physicist. But you're a a biology student but but if you take that in an, as a preparation of a, of a source then the experience is different right it's not because it doesn't all go through the same part of the mind
2: There's just so much too how i experienced the lightning field like you're not allowed to take pictures there and they're very very strict about it the only images that can exist of most of De Maria's work are the ones that he took on film like decades ago. <laughs> it's the same with the Earth Room in New York. And so I get a story, right, of what this place is. I get an understanding of what it means for me to go all the way to the desert in the Southwest and like find my way. Is it into Quemado, New Mexico, some rural town? And then some guy's going to pick me up in a truck and drive me another 45 minutes out into the middle of nowhere on the cusp of the earth. To be alone at a cabin with only a few other people, like that's a story that I get, and I can't. I can see a story too in the images that I'm not allowed to take, um, but nothing's going to capture that time, you know.
0: And that almost requires it to then be transmitted via story, right? Like, it, narrative is the only means of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, I realize we're we're kind of towards the end, but thanks so much for taking the time today to talk a little bit more about Odyssey influences. Before we jump off, if folks are interested in learning more about Odyssey Works and some of the uh, fun things, shenanigans, courses, other stuff that y'all are putting together for 2021, where should they look?
2: Well, you can find our books on our website, which is odysseyworks.org, O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y-W-O-R-K-S. Wow, I can still spell dot (laughs) 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 O-R-G. You can get books. We also have something called the Library of Experiences, which is a separate website that's a compendium of um, experiences. We've designed experiences. Artists we love and respect and admire have contributed Some of them are based on odysseys. They're like abbreviated versions and it's kind of cool. You get a set of instructions and you can filter them for type of experience you want, psychologic, creative, playful. What are some of the other? They're like emotional tags that we have. Narrative. Narrative, Narrative, yes. Spiritual. (laughs) And yeah, our courses are on our website. You can sign up for our mailing list, which is where we announce things. It's all through the website, that magical portal of transformation. (laughs)
0: Wonderful, having just been through one of your workshops. Thank you, better. I, can, I can't recommend it enough to check out what you guys are doing and your unique pedagogy and approach. Aram, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thank,
1: thank you, so Casey. So lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.